We're going to look tonight at the events that took place through the eyes of uh, Dr. Luke. Matthew and Mark and John do not write an orderly account. The only author who writes an orderly account is Luke. Luke's a physician. Luke's a doctor. He's a scientist. And so tonight, I I just want to kind of show you how this fits in order because I don't know about you, but when I can kind of put something in order, it kind of helps me a little bit more to put put the pieces together. There were a lot of events that took place on that last Thursday night in Jesus' life. In fact, someday we'll do a series on it. We could probably do 10 weeks in a row just on the events of the last Thursday night of Jesus' life. And I want to begin with Judas, kind of an unusual place to begin, but here's what happens with Judas. In Luke 22, it says, Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Passover and was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And then it says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officer of the temple guard, and he discussed with them, how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted, and they agreed to give him money. He consented, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. We're all pretty much familiar with the story where Jesus was praying and asking the disciples to pray with him. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like the drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer... And he went back to his disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then Jesus was arrested. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw that he was, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Now think about this story. Here you've got an ear that's just been lopped off. It's in the mud got dirt and dust all over it, and Jesus picks it up and puts it back on the guy's head in perfect shape. And still nobody got it. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who'd come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and with clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away, and they took him into the house of the high priest, which is named Caiaphas. And Peter followed from a distance. 
And some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely and she said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else said to him, you are also one of them. Ma'am, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another one asserted, certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The next scene is about some of the guards. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and they demanded, prophesy who hit you. And with many other insulting things, they said to him. Now, the other gospel writers fill in some story details here. And they tell us that Jesus was basically stripped and they mocked him with a pseudo robe and they began to poke him with their sticks and their spears. They began to curse at him and they began to say insulting things. They take a crown of thorns and they take the crown, a mock crown, and they place it on Jesus' head and the blood just begins to pour off Jesus' head. But then they begin to spit. And they spit all over Jesus. Now, can you imagine the Son of God? And there's spit in his hair, spit in his beard, spit in his mouth, nose, ears. And the spit from these men are just dripping off of Jesus' chin. It's at that moment when I think God the Father had to say, Nope, Michael, nope, Gabriel, nope, you're not going down. Because I picture Michael and Gabriel with swords drawn saying, just give me five minutes. Just give me five minutes. I'll wipe out 6,000. Just give me five minutes and I'll take care of them. I think when the spit began to roll, I think that's when the father himself had to say, I'm holding you back. No, this is my will. This is my plan. But I picture the warriors in heaven with their swords drawn. The next section says at daybreak. Now, what does that mean at daybreak? Well, it means Jesus was arrested on Thursday and he was tried all night long, which was illegal. So there was an illegal trial all night long taking place. At daybreak, the council of the the elders met the people. Both the chief priests and the teachers of law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you would not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all ask, are you the Son of God? He replied, yes, I am. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it with our own lips. We've heard it with his own lips. And the whole assembly then rose up and they led him off to Pilate. Now, why Pilate? Pilate was the Roman governor. They led it, the Jews led him to the Pilate, the Romans, because the Romans were the only ones who could kill somebody. The Jews did not have the authority for capital punishment. And so now we're going to get the Romans involved because the Romans can actually help us Jews to kill him. They led him off to Pilate, the Roman governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, 
We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be a Messiah, a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus the same question. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And then Pilate announced the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against him. But they insisted he stirs up the people and the crowd. All over Judea by his teaching, he started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked the man if he were a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, now Herod was now the king of the Jews, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod, the king of the Jews, saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, for he had a long time wanted to see Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped that he would perform some kind of a sign, perhaps a miracle. And so Herod plied Jesus with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So what does Pilate do? Well, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion, but I have examined him in your presence, and I find no basis for a charge against him, and neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him, and then I'll release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for his insurrection in the city, and he was a murderer. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But the crowd kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke up. Why? What crime has this man committed? I find in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished, and I will release him. But the loud shouts insisted, and they demanded he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate decided to grant their decision. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one who'd been asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. The next section of scripture is the crucifixion itself. And basically, Jesus suffocated, and basically, Jesus bled out. Here's the story. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. And they put the cross on him, and they made him carry it. Why? Because Jesus had been flogged, and he could not carry the cross. Too big, too heavy, too much weight, too far to go. So Simon of Cyrene is there. And a large number of women mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when they will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. If the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? We're familiar with the next part of the story a little bit more. Two other criminals were both led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the other criminals, one on his right 
and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, and they said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came back up again, mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. If you are the king of the Jews, they said, save yourself. And there was a written notice above Jesus' cross, which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? He said, save us and save yourself. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now think about this. Jesus has spikes through his hands, spikes through his nails. He's been on a cross now for hours and hours and hours. And the process is basically suffocation. And it's basically you're going to bleed to death. And what's on the heart and the mind of Jesus is one more into my kingdom, one more into my kingdom, one more into my kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you this, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness was over the land until three in the afternoon. That's a little confusing. It makes it appear as if Jesus was on the cross for three hours. He wasn't. He was on the cross for six. He was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. From 9 to noon, he's on the cross. But the Bible tells us from noon to 3, there was darkness. So the first three hours, kind of a normal morning. The next three hours, darkness covered the earth. Six hours for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was now torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, who had personally been involved with hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions, the centurion who was a doctor of death, when he saw what happened, he praised God. He said, surely this man was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered there to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women, those who'd followed from Galilee, stood at a distance just watching all these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to Pilate, and they asked for Jesus' body. Now, this is unique, and I may talk about this some on Sunday. But what's so unique about this is bodies that were crucified, it was illegal for them to be placed in a tomb. You took the body, and you threw it in the dump. And so here's Joseph of Arimathea going to Pilate. And most scholars believe he probably had to bribe Pilate to get the body. 
Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was a preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who'd come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, and they saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home, and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in accordance with the commandments. The people who make a difference in this world are not the people who have mastered one or two skills. But the people who make a difference in this world are the people who've been mastered by a single passion. And that single passion then begins to drive the course of their life. Let me say this again. The people in this world that make differences... They're not the people who've mastered a skill or two, but they're the people who've been mastered by a single passion, a single person, a single purpose, and it then begins to drive their life. And that's how a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of Christianity, became the Apostle Paul. He became impassioned by Jesus. Jesus called him on the road to Damascus. And though Saul was persecuting Christians, he became so passionate about Jesus because he had met and experienced the Lord Jesus. And that's why Paul could say this, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what did he mean by that? Did he mean he didn't want to learn anything new? Did he mean he didn't want to go to school? Did he mean he didn't want to grow and expand? No, he wasn't saying that. He was saying that what's more important than anything in his life, and Paul could say that. Paul was educated. Paul was wealthy. Paul had a prominent position in life. But Paul was saying the supremacy of Christ is so much greater than anything else that a person could ever experience. The people in this world who make a difference, it's not that they've become so skilled in an area. They've become passionate by a single great purpose. In the rest of Paul's life, he became passionate about about the cross because Paul recognized what the cross was all about. And that's why Paul said, I'm not going to boast about anything else. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, Paul said, far be it from me if I boast about anything else except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like the old prophet Jeremiah. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. But let him who boasts, boasts about this, that he knows me and understands me, and that I am the Lord. And so Paul would boast about the cross. Now, again, does that mean you can't encourage your kids? Does that mean you can't write your grandkids notes? Does that mean that you can't talk about great things that happen? Does that mean you can't celebrate Bubba Watson winning the Masters or last night at the Rays games. I saw a triple play, even though it was the Yankees who got three outs at one time against us. Of course not. We can celebrate those things and enjoy those. But Paul is saying compared to the cross, everything else is just pale in comparison. And so to brag about the cross, you've got to live near the cross. To brag about the cross, sometimes you've got to put yourself on the cross. And I think that's what Paul meant in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and, and I no longer live. Now, what do you mean you don't, you don't live? You're breathing, you're eating, you're moving, you're planting churches. Well, again, what Paul is saying is what I live for, what runs my life, what drives me is the supremacy of the value of the cross. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith. That's your ticket. Your ticket is faith. You take a step of faith and you grow. You take another step of faith and you grow. You take another step of faith and you grow. And your faith gets bigger and bigger and bigger because every baby step you take, you find out that he's faithful. Every baby step you take in faith, you recognize that he blesses you and he honors you and he puts his hand of blessing on your life and on your family. And so Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. And so when you see the cross, what do you see? If you were the only one in the room and the lights were dim and there's a spotlight on the cross, what, what do you see when you look at the cross and you think about your life? What do you think about? When you think about the cross and how Jesus went to the cross for you, what, what, what goes through your mind? Do you see a blood-soaked body? Do you see nail-pierced hands? Do you see large spikes going through someone's feet? Can you see the side that's got a scar with blood and water? Jesus dies of a ruptured heart. Can you see somebody who loved you so much he was willing to give up his life in your place? Do you see a blood-soaked body? Do you see God's glory? Do you see God's wisdom? Do you see God's gift to you? Do you recognize that Christ died on your behalf? Folks, you can't buy your way into heaven. Maybe they bribed Pilate for the body, but you can't bribe God to get into heaven. There's no good deeds, no not one, that you can, I can ever do to earn our way into heaven. It was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that allowed us to have our sins forgiven. Do you see the transference? Do you begin to think about, oh, that week at spring break, oh, it's on the cross. Oh, that second marriage that I really just deep-sixed, oh, that train wreck of a business deal. Do you, see, do you see your sin? Do you see your betrayal? Do you see your fallacies and foibles and faults? Do you see the areas of your life? They, they went to the cross. You see, my laundry list of sins and your laundry list of sins is what kept Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus Christ took your sins and my sins and he offered a perfect sacrifice. Do you see love? Do you see honor? Do you see freedom? Do you see forgiveness? When you look at the cross... What is it that you see?